0: discourse to you this morning, the Messiah's humble mount. Follow along as I read Matthew 21, beginning with verse 1. And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitudes spread their garments in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him And those who followed after were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is an amazing scene, a very fascinating passage of Scripture. In order for us to fully comprehend what, it is, what is going on, I would like to give you some historical context. It's interesting to note that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we read in Mark 1 verse 15 what he said. It is this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel. Obviously, this announcement of the kingdom required Israel to make a decision to repent and to believe in their Messiah. And had they done so, he would have established his earthly kingdom. But that was not part of his plan, though they were still responsible for their unbelief. Some will argue that he was merely offering a spiritual kingdom, The rule of God in the heart, they say. But such an announcement would have been silly to them because such a rule of God had always been recognized by them. No, dear friends, what Jesus was offering them was God's mediatorial kingdom on earth through the reign of the Messiah. While his promise cannot be abrogated, such a kingdom on earth has always been conditioned upon regeneration, repentance, resulting in faith and obedience, all based upon divine election and sovereign grace, especially within the historical nation of Israel. So God's promises to Abraham had to be received by faith, and those promises were established in history at Sinai, subject to Israel's willingness to obey God, but as we know, they rebelled, and the kingdom was terminated on earth. So now Jesus comes, the beginning of his ministry, to offer himself to them as the promised Messiah King who will establish the kingdom if they will repent, but they still refused. Despite all of the miracles he performed to authenticate both his message and he as the messenger, they rejected him. Now, as we look at Scripture, we see that the battle lines were drawn very early in Jesus' earthly ministry. When, for example, in his initial cleansing of the temple, he made his first great public assertion of his messianic rites. John records this in chapter 2, beginning in verse 16, where Jesus says, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. His disciples then remembered what was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. Well, the tide of opposition continued to mount over the course of Jesus' ministry as the Messiah King offered the kingdom to Israel. But the climax of this rejection occurred when the Pharisees attributed the miraculous works of the Spirit-anointed Messiah to Satan. That, you might say, was the straw that broke the camel's back. From that time on, the offer of the immediate establishment of the kingdom on earth was withdrawn. And Jesus' ministry then began to focus more on the death of the king and on his second coming. So beginning in Matthew 13, we see Christ setting forth the mystery form of the kingdom through a new series of parables. And you will recall in those parables, he deliberately confused the hard-hearted, unbelieving multitudes as an act of judicial hardening for the rejection of him as their Messiah. And in that context, he began to announce a new thing, his church, a body of believers invested with special authority in the future kingdom of heaven, those who would be the spiritual nucleus of the future kingdom. In Matthew 16, you will recall, beginning in verse 15, upon the testimony of Peter that that Christ is the Son of the living God, Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Keys referring to stewardship and to authority. So now the church becomes the new custodian of, custodians of the truths of the kingdom. Jesus described this even more in Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 43. There we read, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. You referring to the wicked, evil leaders of Israel and those that followed him or followed them. The keys are the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. People, ethnos in the original language. It can be translated nation. I believe it's a reference to the church, which Peter also described as a holy nation. But it will also, we know through scripture, it will one day include a repentant and regenerated nation of Israel living on a renovated earth with her Messiah, all in harmony with Old Testament prophecy. Because Israel rejected her Messiah, the mystery phase of the kingdom was ushered in as the church became the temporary replacement of Israel as the new custodians of truth. The body of Christ made up of both Jews and Gentiles, described by the Apostle Paul as heirs together and sharers together in the promises in Christ Jesus. But may I remind you that Israel is never absorbed into the church. It remains distinct from the church as an ethnic people. And as a nation, they will still have a future in God's prophetic course. So the present church age must be seen as part of an ongoing fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that will culminate in the messianic kingdom when Christ comes again as King of kings and Lord of lords and establishes his kingdom upon the earth. So the church shares in the promises of Israel, but not in her unique identity as a chosen nation. As we look at Scripture, Israel was God's unique focus of redemption in one dispensation in the Old Testament, while the church, consisting of both Jews and Gentiles, has been made his focus since their rejection of him. But ultimately, God's focus will once again return to Israel during the millennial reign of Christ, when all God's remaining covenant promises to Israel will be fulfilled literally, including the promises of earthly blessings and an earthly messianic kingdom. And prophetic literature is literally filled with the pivotal role Israel will play during that time. So in Jesus' ministry, after he comes to his own and his own rejects him, and after announcing the mystery form of the kingdom that will exist during the church age that we live in now, he begins to explain his death and his resurrection in more detail. A topic, as you will recall, the disciples did not fully understand. They didn't want to hear that. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, we read, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and be raised up on the third day. It's interesting to note that the cross was not the central theme early on in Jesus' ministry because Jesus was offering himself as the messianic king of Israel, which they refused. But then we know that in order to reassure his disciples that his impending death would not in any way cancel the promised earthly kingdom and to show them that its establishment would be in association with his second coming, what did Jesus do? He took Peter, James, and John to the Mount of Transfiguration. and He peeled back his flesh in some supernatural way and and allowed the effulgence of his glory to blaze forth where they could see just a little sample of the coming king in all of his glory. Then in Matthew chapter 19, especially verse 28, as further assurance that the kingdom promises would not be abandoned, Jesus promised the disciples that they would have a special place in the coming kingdom on earth. There he said, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, that is the new world, the millennium, When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And now, dear friends, in the text before us, as the king makes his solemn march to his rejection and to his crucifixion at the hands of his own kinsmen, we see how meticulous he is to not omit one single physical detail of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the long-awaited kingdom. In Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, the prophet says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, foal of a donkey and it's this amazing event that we celebrate on Palm Sunday and therefore this will be our focus this morning but think about it what an incredible com- contradiction how incongruent how inconceivable this combination the king of kings riding on a donkey peasants ride donkeys Kings ride on gallant steeds. Why would the king of kings, the chosen one of Israel, the lord of hosts, ride on a donkey? What kind of triumph is this? As we look at the text, as we see what happened historically, we have to ask the question, where is his conquering army, complete with sword and spear? Where? are his charioteers and archers? Where are his hostages and his prisoners? Where's his wagon carts filled with treasure? Where is the procession of dignitaries? Where do we see his royal court and all of his subjects? We don't hear any blaring trumpets. We don't hear the pounding of drums. We see many shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna meaning save now. But what is he saving them from? Certainly not Rome. And how is he going to save them? What kind of king is this? Where is his golden crown studded with jewels? Where is his robe of purple to adorn his royal person? Where is his golden scepter, his palace, his throne? Where can we see his royal edicts and his laws and decrees posted? Where are all the royal enforcers of the law, his entourage of tax collectors? What do we make of this? Beloved, I would submit to you that what we have before us is an opportunity to ascend to the very heights of divine revelation where we are allowed to gaze upon this glorious spectacle of God's mercy, His grace, and His love. Here we see our Savior, meek and lowly, the King of kings indeed, but not coming to ask His subjects to go to battle to die for Him, but rather He comes to die for them. Here we witness the Son of God not in his glorification, but in his humiliation, voluntarily coming to conquer sin. Though he is the almighty sovereign who has created all things and rules over all things, he's not riding a gallant steed towards a throne, but a beast of burden towards a cross. This is a condescension that we cannot fathom. Today we observe our Savior entering into the very city that he established. We must remember that this was the place once called Mount Moriah where Abraham's faith was tested and confirmed in the offering of his son Isaac. This was the resting place of the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of his glorious presence. This is Mount Zion. This is the city of David to whom was promised an eternal kingdom through his greater son that would one day come. This is that holy city upon a hill that once contained Solomon's temple, but now what we call the second temple. That city of which he has earlier lamented, over which he's earlier lamented, he wept over them, according to Luke thirteen thirty four, saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A reference to his second coming. So the Messiah King does not enter his city with great joy, but with immense sorrow. And we must bear this in mind in order to better understand what's happening here. The tears are flowing down his cheeks. In Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 41, Luke records this and says, And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day... Even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And on April 9th, 70 A.D., this was fulfilled perfectly, precisely when Titus and the Roman army built a siege wall all around Jerusalem and then little by little over the course of that summer they slowly starved the inhabitants of Jerusalem and then Rome, the Romans came in and systematically slaughtered them Attacking one part of the city at a time. And many of the same people that were crying, Hosanna, were part of those who would later be slaughtered. They utterly destroyed the temple. They took the remaining people captive to Rome to be mocked and butchered in the Roman circus, in gladiatorial bouts and so forth. And so our Lord's entrance into Jerusalem marks the beginning of what is called the Passion Week, where he would come and suffer and die. A week, however, that would ultimately finish in great triumph in his resurrection. So to help us grasp this, re- the, the, the amazing realities of this text, I, I've divided it into three sections that I hope will be helpful to you. We're going to see a sovereign orchestration, a symbolic procession, and finally, a senseless coronation. And I pray that over the course of this hour, we will all get lost once again in the wonder of his glory and grace. Let's think about this. Number one, this was a sovereign orchestration. Bear in mind that for 30 years, Jesus lived in utter obscurity, Then he ministered publicly for three years, always perfect to do the will of his father. And now, unlike the coronation of any other king, he enters into Jerusalem with no pomp, no ceremony, no magnificent pageantry, and yet all of this was ordained in eternity past by a sovereign God, as we will see. We know from the text that multitudes followed him from Jericho going to, Passover, to the Passover. And many others joined in from Bethpage, which was a small village close to Bethany, which was the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. In John 12, the first three verses, we learn that Jesus visited them there six days before the Passover. No doubt he came there to find comfort uh, around his friends to find strength in their fellowship, because he knew that he was about to be the Passover lamb that would be sacrificed. So again, this was Passover. Thousands of Jewish pilgrims are coming from all around, making their annual pilgrimage. And the census records of that era, 10 years later, tell us that over 2 million worshipers were there, with 260,000 lambs that were slaughtered which would have been a minimum of one for every ten people. And perhaps more people were there on on Jesus, on the day that Jesus came. So if that would have happened ten years later, you can imagine how many would have been there during the day of Jesus. Now, since, according to John, Jesus was at Bethany, and this is very important for you to bear in mind, since he was there at Bethany, quote, six days before the Passover, which was probably on Saturday, on Shabbat, it was on the next Sunday that the Jewish crowds, that next day that the Jewish crowds came to see Jesus, according to John 12, and Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. This was quite a spectacle. Word had gotten around on this. So according to John 12, 12, on the next day, the great multitudes who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went... Out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So it was most likely on Monday, rather than the traditional Palm Sunday, that all of this occurred. After Jesus had been in Bethany with Lazarus, after he had traveled then through Bethpage, making his way through the eastern gate of Jerusalem. So a a Monday triumphal entry is is very important for another reason as well. We know according to Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 2, that according to the Mosaic law, Passover lambs had to be selected on the 10th day of the first month. Then that lamb had to be taken into the home like a dear pet. Everyone would fall in love with that lamb. And then that lamb had to be sacrificed on the 14th. Now, only a Monday triumphal entry would fulfill this important symbolism because the year Jesus was crucified, the 10th of Nisan was on the Monday of the Passover week. So this would allow the Jews nationally to select Jesus as their Passover lamb, even though they didn't understand this, take him into their hearts and their homes sacrificially, and symbolically, and then love him, and then sacrifice him on the Friday, the 14th of Nisan. Now, may I remind you that this amazing event was prophesied many, many years before, some 600 years before. We know this because about 600 years earlier, the Holy Spirit revealed to the prophet Daniel the precise date that Jesus would enter into Jerusalem. Of course, Daniel didn't fully understand all that was going on, although he recorded it. In Daniel 9, verse 25, he speaks of the time of Artaxerxes' decree, quote, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. In other words, between the time that Artaxerxes said to Nehemiah, you can go and restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there's going to be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, literally, seven sevens and and 62 sevens, seven referring to a week of years. Let me break this down for you because it sounds more complicated than it really is. Seven weeks of years is 49 years, 62 weeks that he talks about is 434 years. And so if we take 49 and 434, we add them together, we get 483 years, literally 69 sevens. You know, we talk about Daniel's 70th week, we're waiting for that to happen, it'll be the time of the tribulation. So 483 years after Artaxerxes' decree to Nehemiah to go rebuild and restore Jerusalem, the Messiah, the prince, was presented to the Jewish nation on April 10th, 30 A.D. Likewise, our Lord's triumphal yet very humble entry was predicted 500 years earlier in the text that we read in Zechariah 9.9 the text that Matthew quotes in verse 5 of the text that we have before us. And again, Zechariah said this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So my point with all of this is simply this. A sovereign God has orchestrated all of these events to fulfill his glorious purposes. So we come now to Matthew 21 and verse 1, and we see Jesus approaching Jerusalem purposefully, voluntarily, obedient to do the Father's will, all a part of a sovereign orchestration. But secondly, I would submit to you that this was a symbolic procession. Notice How in verse 2, he sends his disciples to a predetermined, preordained location to secure for him a donkey tied there and a colt with her, and he says, untie them and bring them to me, and if anyone says something to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. It's interesting, if we go to Mark's gospel, we read that this is precisely what happened, uh, they, they were tied outside the door of this place. A group asked, well, you know, what are you doing? They, they told them and they said, okay, you can have them and so forth. And beloved, I would, I would have to stop for a moment. Such foreknowledge and omniscience is yet another illustration of the deity of our Savior. I hope you see that here. But I also see another fascinating truth embedded in this seemingly incidental scenario. I want you to notice there are two donkeys, a mare and her colt, which, by the way, could have been the same size. Now, I might add that I'm speaking to you now not as merely your pastor and as a theologian, but also as a horseman, because I'm very familiar with this territory, having worked with horses over many years and donkeys. Let me explain. Mark and Luke tell us that no one has ever sat upon this colt. And why is this significant? Well, I know what it's like to sit upon a colt that has never been sat on before. And it is not a good experience. There had to be a miracle. It had to be a miracle for anyone to sit on a colt that has never been ridden and then ride it through this amazing procession. Now, donkeys are extremely temperamental. They're very suspicious. They're very fearful. A common statement among my, my cowboy friends out west about donkeys is this. I remember the first time I heard it. I will never forget it. They said, A donkey is like a horse, and even more so. You get the idea, don't you? Let me give you a little background. This is fascinating. In Genesis 9, we read how God blessed Noah and his sons after the flood. In verse 1, he told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But then immediately, he told them that there is going to be a drastic change from what they had just experienced with respect to the animals on the ark. In verses 2 and 3, God said this, "...and the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky." with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Now, indeed, all creatures are terrified of man. I think we would all agree with that. And donkeys are herbivores. They are not carnivores. And like every herbivore, They are afraid of every carnivore, including man. We are at the top of the carnivore food chain, you might say. They have a very hard time gaining trust with us. They live in constant fear. This is part of the curse. You remember in Romans 8... Paul talks about how that all of creation groans, waiting eagerly for the second coming. In other words, the the renovation of the earth, the millennial kingdom, the return to Edenic splendor when the fear of all those fears will be eradicated. And we also know that donkeys can be very aggressive. You may notice if you drive around in the, the, the countryside here in Tennessee, like you would find all over the world many ranchers will have donkeys out there with their cattle. There's a good reason for that. It's because donkeys run off coyotes and wild dogs and in other places wolves and so forth. But friends, I challenge you. Find a donkey, a young colt, and separate it from its mother even though it has been weaned. Try putting a rope around it and leading it away. And then, according to verse 7, throw your garment upon its back that smells like meat. All right? We smell like a carnivore to them. That's why they're so terrified of us. As soon as you throw your garment on that unbroke donkey's back, he thinks he's for dinner. That's just how he thinks. And then try riding that donkey. Get up on him with your coat on him, one that's never been ridden. And to make it worse, let's take thousands of other coats and throw them on the ground with palm branches and ask him to walk over that with you riding on top of him. And now to make things even worse, let's take thousands and thousands of screaming carnivores waving palm branches in front of him and on back of him and watch what happens. This is his worst nightmare. Even a donkey or a horse that is well broke would not be able to endure such a thing. And donkeys especially, they're, they're notorious for bad manners. They, they, they're always hunting boogers, we call it, as, as cowboys. They're always looking for something to be afraid of. They will shy. They will balk and bite and kick and buck and run off and be utterly terrified un- until they gain your trust somehow. And even the horses that are trained down in Nashville with the police department have to go through enormous training to somehow be able to handle crowds. And even with that, it's very difficult to keep them under control. So where am I going with all of this? I'll tell you. What we have before us is an example of the creator God who miraculously calmed this little guy down so that his creator could Get up on his back. This is a miracle, beloved. But I would submit to you that there's something else here that is even more incredible. This is a foretaste of millennial blessing. This is a foretaste of the time of restoration and regeneration, both physically and spiritually, when the King of Kings comes in all of his glory to establish his kingdom, that time when, according to Romans eleven twenty six, 26, all Israel will be saved. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is a foretaste of that time when the Father will give the Son all of the nations as his inheritance. And he will break them with a rod of iron, Psalm 2, 2. This will be a time not only for peace, between men and men but also peace between men and animals a time when the terror will be removed Isaiah 11 speaks of this beginning in verse 6 it will be a time when the wolf will dwell with the lamb the leopard shall lie down with the young goat the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. Beloved, this will be a time of universal peace when the root of Jesse shall stand as a banner to his people, as the scriptures tell us. It will be a time when the Gentiles will seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious, a time of national restoration for Israel. You see, this is a, a glimpse of the kingdom age that the disciples and the multitudes were looking for. This is why they were shouting, Hosanna! They thought that Jesus was going to inaugurate this right then and there, that glorious time when All of the redeemed will reign with Jesus, the Anointed One, as Daniel prophesied in Daniel 7, verse 27, where he says, Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all of the dominions will serve and obey him. Beloved, I believe that hidden in this amazing scenario is an example of the power of Jesus miraculously canceling out the effects of the curse in this young donkey that has never, ever been ridden before. A subtle affirmation whereby Jesus is saying, Yes, I am the Almighty. I am the promised one of Israel. And one day I will accomplish all that I have promised The pristine happiness and peace of Eden, that time of regeneration will come, a time of tranquility evidenced by what is happening with this young donkey. But today I come on a beast of burden, for I must bear the burden of your sins. Today I come as the Prince of Peace, because it is only through my sacrifice that you can have peace with God and be reconciled to him. Today I come to save you, not from Rome, but from your sin. So I ride this lowly animal, symbolic of humility, not the mighty steed of a conquering king, though that day is coming. I come to triumph over Satan, sin, and death, not to triumph over the nations and the rulers of this world. Though I am the Lord of hosts, though I have myriads at my command, my invisible army awaits yet another day. Another day when I will come in power and in great glory. But today, my warriors are fishermen and common people people who march on their knees in prayer and who wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. My subjects are not the great and the powerful, not the religious and the political elite, but the meek and the lowly. The only treasure that accompanies me is my love and my mercy and grace. Today I ride towards my temple, not a palace. My destination is a cross, not a throne. I come not to be crowned, but to be crucified. In fact, my crown is one of thorns, not one of jewels. My robe is not a royal purple robe, but a peasant's cloak. As the Son of Man, unlike foxes who have dens and holes and birds that have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And Though I am the King of kings, my kingdom is not of this world. It's as if he's saying, I clutch only the scepter of righteousness, not that of brute force, not now, not yet. My law is not written on parchment of stone, but on hearts of flesh. And my decrees are not contrived by the wisdom of of man, but breathed out by God, very God. My edicts aren't enforced by man, but by my spirit. And my subjects obey me, not out of duty, but out of desire." because of the transformation that I have performed in their hearts. All of those who are weary and heavy laden come to me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. They love what I love, they hate what I hate. Therefore the King of Kings rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Beloved, we have so much to learn here. May I remind you that his kingdom is not of this world If it were, we would all be royalty and the world would be at our command. And the implications of this symbolic procession are really staggering with respect to the church when you think about it. I mean, think of it this way. As believers, we are royal subjects of our king. Our citizenship is in heaven, it's not on earth. Did I come unplugged? Can you still hear me? Did I come unplugged? Okay. Well, I'll try to speak loud. And it's for this reason that we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're longing for that time of the kingdom. But even as Jesus was meek and lowly, likewise, the the splendor and the glory and the majesty of himself and of his people awaits another day. And practically speaking, there is no place for ostentatious buildings and ornate robes and flamboyant vestments in the church. That's why I'm not standing up here with some flamboyant robe and hat and people all around me waving smoke and all of those types of things. You see, the earth is not the realm of rule for the church. This is why we're not to seek political power as the church. We have no business there. That is not our mandate. We're not even to be involved in the political process. Our commission is to make disciples. In fact, I would submit to you that only pagan religions seek temporal glory. That's not what we're about. We don't have grand ceremonies and grandiose cathedrals and and mosques and pretentious garments, political aspirations. Spurgeon said this, If it were Christ's will, he might make his saints, every one of them, a prince. He might make his church rich and powerful. He might lift up his religion if he chose and make it the most magnificent and sumptuous If it were his will, there is no reason why all the glory we read of in the Old Testament under Solomon might not be given to the church under David's greater son. But he does not come to do it. And hence the impertinence of those who think that Christ is to be worshipped with a gorgeous architecture, with magnificent vestments, with proud processions, with the alliance of states, with churches, with making... The bishops of God, magnificent lords and rulers, with lifting up the church herself and attempting to put her, put upon her shoulders those garments that will never fit her, vestments that were never meant for her. If Christ cared for this world's glory, it might soon be at his feet. If he will to take it, we should raise a tongue against his claim or we should lift a finger against his might. Who would do that? but he cares not for it, end quote. That's the point of all of this. So may we all be willing to serve in humility and obscurity, awaiting that time when the kingdom does come. Having seen a sovereign orchestration and a symbolic procession, I close with a few comments on the senseless coronation. Notice verse 8. And most of the multitudes spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The multitudes going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You see, they thought that this miracle worker that fed thousands, that cast out demons, that healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, raised the dead, compelled the people with amazing teaching to do things that they had never heard of before. They, they thought that he was coming to deliver them from the bondage of Rome, that he was coming to meet all of their physical needs. I mean, this is neo-Marxism before Marxism became popular. That's what they thought. By the way, that's what people want today and their political leaders. So they threw their garments on the road, which was the ancient custom for, to, to, for subjects to display their utter submission to a king that was entering the city. They're waving palm branches. That was always a, a symbol of, of joy and celebration and salvation. And we read that there's this enormous multitude in front and in back of him saying, verse 9, Hosanna to the, to the son of David. Hosanna meaning save now. That was an exclamation of of supplication and adoration, of prayer and praise and so forth. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting Psalm 118, verse 26 that we read earlier, part of six psalms known as the Hallel, meaning praise, sung at Passover, celebrating their deliverance from Egypt. And yet, tragically, they did not make the connection of Zechariah's prophecy that their king would be coming in lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Nor did they understand verse thir- chapter 13 and verse 1 of Zechariah where the prophet says this, In that day, in other words, when the Lord would cleanse Jerusalem, in that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. Sadly, like so many people today, They created a God of their own making, not one that resembled, even resembled the true Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Thus, their coronation ceremony was senseless. It was rash. It was self-serving. John MacArthur said this, although the shouts of the multitude were entirely appropriate and were, in fact, fulfillment of prophecy, the people had no idea of the true significance of what they were doing much less of what Jesus would soon do on the cross on their behalf. They neither understood the Lord nor themselves. He intentionally did not enter Jerusalem with a powerful retinue of soldiers who would fight for him to the death. He entered instead with a ragtag multitude of ordinary people, most of whom, despite their loud proclamation of his greatness, would soon turn against him and none of whom would stand by him. Indeed, what a senseless, pointless coronation, all of it fueled by self-serving, self-righteous people who refused to believe in who Jesus really was, even as many today. In fact, it closes by saying that when he had entered Jerusalem, verse 10, all the city was stirred saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Amazing, isn't it? Even after all the hoopla, after the emotional frenzy and mob hysteria all subside, some of them still aren't able to accurately identify who Jesus is. It's some prophet, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Well, I wish to challenge you in closing here this morning to examine your own heart. You simply must examine your heart. Do you worship Jesus? the Lord Jesus Christ, and see him as he really is, your Savior and your Lord? Or have you, like those people in about 2,000 years ago, have you concocted some Jesus that is self-serving? Someone who will deliver you from your poverty, or from your sickness, or from your poor self-esteem, or from your lack of success, from your disappointment in life. Does your praise accurately reflect Jesus' deity and his lordship as well as your unworthiness? Well, if not, I would plead with you today to look at Jesus and see who he really is. Acknowledge who he really is and bow your knee before him and humble yourself before his saving grace. Bow before him today as your savior. Because if you don't, one day you will bow before Him against your will as your judge. And for those of us who know and love Christ, my, my, what an amazing Savior we have, right? Isn't it amazing to think all that He did, how the Word of God all comes together, and to know all that He's up to, to know that even as He orchestrated all of those events precisely, precisely, on exactly the day that he said he would do it? I mean, why would we have any reason to doubt that the rest of his prophecies are not likewise going to be fulfilled in the same literal way to bring glory into himself? Oh, what an inheritance we have as believers. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. Do what you must do by the power of your Spirit, to make them a part of every life, especially for those who might be within the sound of my voice who really know nothing of what it means to walk in faith and obedience with the living Christ. Those who may play church, maybe people who have gone to church all of their life, but they know nothing of the soul satisfying joy of the presence of the living God deep within their soul. They know nothing of the hope that belongs only to the redeemed. Oh, God, by your grace, penetrate their heart with the truth of the gospel and save them. And for the rest of us, oh, Lord, once again, help us to get lost in the wonder of your grace and your love. And Lord Jesus, we plead with you. Come quickly. Come quickly, we pray. Amen.